Good morning. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. In the Bible's provided, that begins, our passage begins on page 1003. We're going to be in Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12. Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12. As you turn there, you'll be helped to have your Bibles open and follow along. If you need a um, uh, listening guide on the back tables, it has the um, uh, sermon points uh, and some discussion questions, as well as on the back as a children's listening guide. If I were to characterize what the author of Hebrews has been doing up to this point in the book of Hebrews... It's this, he's been making the case that the Hebrews understand and become convinced of the supremacy of Christ. And we've been considering this, that he's a better priest. He's better than Moses. He offers us a better rest than the Sabbath. He's a better sympathizer. He offers us better sympathy than the priest. But woven through this teaching are exhortations and warnings, right? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard to one. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, 312. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may, may fall by the same sort of disobedience that their forefathers did, 411. We're familiar with this kind of speaking. This is the way parents speak. This is the way teachers speak. We teach and we exhort at the same time. Mixed in our message to our kids is, are you getting this? It's important you get this. You remember that kid down the street that didn't do this and you know what happened to him? Or like a teacher in the middle of a lesson. Do you understand this concept? If you don't understand, speak up because this is important and the next thing is going to build on this. And so if you don't get this, the next thing is going to be absolute fog. You say you understand it, but the results of the last quiz show that you may not be as confident in this as you think you are. Last week, the author began to teach on Jesus, the great high priest in 414. And he's going to speak of Jesus as the great high priest all the way from 414, all the way through the end of chapter 10. So this is an extended teaching that he's beginning here. Lord willing, Easter Sunday, we'll begin to delve farther into this idea of Jesus being the priest after the order of Melchizedek. That he's a priest of a better covenant and how the earthly temple is a picture of the heavenly places and how Jesus is a better mediator and his sacrifice is a better sacrifice. There are some deep things that he's going to teach us. And the author introduced that topic last week at the end in 5.10. And today he introduces this section in 5.11. He says, about this, about those things that I talked about, we have much to say. And, it's, um, and, and so he's saying, we have much to say about this and we're going to get there. But before we get there, he's going to issue one last warning. But it's not a warning that's come out of the blue. This isn't just kind of thrown into the text. No, it's, it's not a late addition. It's not misplaced. He's been building toward this warning. Pay attention. Take care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Be careful. They didn't listen and your forefathers fell in the wilderness because of disobedience. And why does the author say they need to listen to this? Because their hearing is already growing dull and they've become sluggish. I've divided this message into three sections and they will guide our time this morning. The first one is sluggishness leads to spiritual infancy. Sluggishness leads to spiritual infancy. We see that in 5.11 through 6.3. Secondly, sluggishness. That's a hard word for me to say. Uh, My mother gave me a pacifier when I was a child and I'm still dealing with the ramifications today. Sluggishness unchecked leads to eternal death. Sluggishness, Sluggishness unchecked leads to eternal death. We see that in 6, 4 through 8. And finally, fighting against sluggishness is a lifelong battle. Fighting against sluggishness is a lifelong battle. We see that in 6, 9 through 6, 12. So let's begin reading in 5, 11. This is God's word. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is God's word. So where do we get this idea of sluggishness from? This is our first point. Sluggishness leads to spiritual infancy. Where do we get this idea of sluggishness? The Greek word for sluggishness is found twice in the New Testament. And both of those instances are found in the book of Hebrews. And they actually bookend our passage. We see the idea of sluggishness in 5.11. And we see the idea of sluggishness with the word sluggishness in 6.12. And so in 5.11, it's, it's translated become dull, dull of hearing. And in, in 5.11, that, that's dull of hearing. And in 6.12, we see that you may not be sluggish. And so that's why I've divided our passage uh, the way we've divided it today. What's the root of their sluggishness? We don't get this from the immediate context of the passage, but there is some speculation on what brought it about that we can get from the book. Persecution is greatly increasing for these Christians. They're getting it from all sides. They're getting officially persecuted from the Caesar. They're officially persecuted from the Jewish rulers. And they're informally getting it from other Jews who are turning them in or calling them out. They figured that this was a short-term deal when they came to Christ, that it would be over soon. But days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months and months to years. 
And it continues to go on. And Jesus hasn't come back and nothing is getting better. And it's incredibly hard. They don't feel like they have a home base. They don't have Jerusalem anymore. And the national identity they once had is gone. And they find themselves opposed by their own people. This is an incredibly hard life for these Christians. And so there may be a desire on their part just to lay low. Maybe we, they think, okay, we started, this, we started taking this teaching of Jesus very seriously. And it really caused some problems for us. Let's just go back to Judaism. We can coexist there. We know the important stuff. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe it. We believe that he paid for our sins. That's enough for us. They don't want to go go engaging others with the gospel lest they be dragged into court. And so they aren't talking about these truths anymore. They receive the message of Christ with joy. It really, I mean, it opened their eyes. But the more they try to apply the teaching of Jesus to their lives, their lives get messier and messier because of the gospel. And it demands so much more of them. And so they say, okay, we've got quite enough Jesus, thank you very much. We don't need any more. And this whole book is exhorting them to put aside that thinking. The work of Jesus changes everything. And so the author is going deeper and deeper into the work of Christ to show them the ramifications on their life so that they may better comprehend the breadth and depth and length and height that, of God's love for them. But the writer says that these truths are hard to explain to them. Not because the concepts are hard to grasp, but because their hearing has become dull. And because their hearing has become dull, they are becoming spiritually immature. They are infants in the faith. Therefore, they need to be taught as infants. They need to be fed in ways that spiritually immature people are fed. They need milk. What does he mean by milk? He alludes to this concept or this analogy of milk in a few ways here. He refers to this milk as the basic principles of God in 5.12. The basic principles of the oracles of God in 5.12. Meaning the Old Testament, how the Old Testament points to Jesus. This isn't a new religion. This is a continuation of the Old Testament. It's not a new story. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Mark Dever titles his Old Testament survey promises made and his New Testament survey promises kept. And so you don't go back, Hebrews, to the Old Testament and set aside Christ. The Old Testament is there to teach you about Christ. So then he moves on and he refers to this milk in another way is the elementary doctrines of Christ, which we see in 6, 1 and 2. He, he, he explains these elementary, elementary doctrines in pairs. The elementary, I mean, uh, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This is talking about sin. I'm teaching you about sin. Repentance of sin and turning away from sin and faith to, and toward God and faith. 
That's the elementary doctrine of repentance and faith from dead works. There's instructions about washings and laying on of hands that he refers to as an elementary doctrine. This is a little more difficult to decipher what's going on, but the best explanation I've, I've heard is that this is distinguishing between Jewish ceremonial washings and baptism, the Christian ordinance of baptism. And the teaching is that there is a public nature to baptism. This is signifying how you are dying to sin and you are raised to newness of life in Christ. And the laying on of hands is the public affirmation of the church saying, yes, we see this in you. We see a change in you. We acknowledge that something new has happened to you, that you are a new creation. And so that is the teaching of, of uh, washings and, and laying on of hands. And then lastly, this last basic doctrine is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. How there is a resurrection of the dead. That there is something after this and there are eternal consequences of this life here on earth and the fixed nature of that eternity for all people. And the author says, you ought to be teaching this stuff. You ought to be teaching this right now, but instead I'm having to teach it to you over and over again. Now this doesn't mean that unless you're teaching a Sunday school class or unless you're preaching in church here that you're a spiritual infant. That's not what this is saying. But he's saying you ought to be teaching these things and speaking of these things to others, calling them to faith. But instead of teaching... These people need to be spoon-fed these truths once again. Now we understand the analogy. Milk is for infants. Because for one, they don't have the muscle development in their mouth to eat complex things, right? They can't chew. All they can do is open their throats and just download it. Just take it all in. There's no discernment whatsoever. It's just whatever's in the bottle, in my belly. They would choke if they tried solid food. Neither do they have the ability to digest solid food. They'll throw it up. Their digestive system isn't trained or conditioned or developed for that. It's not prepared for these things, so they reject it. You feed them rich food and it does them no good. And the one feeding them ends up with it on his shirt. We can see the connection to Christians. We don't want to be Christians who just come into church once a week and just go, eh, feed me. Just feed me enough of the word to get me through the next week. But we come, but if we come with this attitude just to be spoon fed, the author says we lose discernment in the process. This causes people to be like Paul describes in Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro by the waves and by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and crafted by craftiness and deceitful scheming. People like that don't want to work hard at understanding. What is our reaction when we hear sermons like sermons from Leviticus or sermons from Hebrews do we wrestle with them? Do we seek to understand them? Or do we just turn off our minds and our ears and go, eh, you had me, but I'm out. And then you just start thinking about lunch and drawing three-dimensional squares on your 
on your paper. I'm not calling anybody out. I can't see anybody's paper. But think about Jesus in the parables. Think about the parable we just read. These parables were hard to understand. Some just turned it off when they heard it. They go, this guy's off his rocker. He's talking about farming and fig trees and weather. He, he has no, it, it makes no sense. There were others who heard what Jesus said and thought, I'm not sure, but I think he's taking a shot at me. And offended, they just left. But the disciples, what did they do? Did they understand it all? No, they didn't. They did not understand it. But they would come back to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, what were you talking? I didn't understand that. Can you explain it to us? We saw that in the New Testament reading. They came before him and go, we don't understand this parable of the sower. And he explains it to them. On other occasions, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, man, the people you were just speaking to were greatly offended by what you said. This is a hard teaching. And he says, do you want to go away too? And they're like, no, where would we go? You've got the words of eternal life. We're stuck. We don't know what to do. But they wrestled with what they were being taught. The point is they didn't easily, it didn't come easily to them. They struggled with it. They wrestled with it. They sought to understand. We don't give little kids hard candy. Why not? Because they'll either swallow it whole and choke on it, or they'll break their, treat, their teeth trying to chew it up. But we want to be people who hear these truths and teachings and sermons, and we chew on them and we suck on them like a lozenge and we turn them over in our minds and we think on them through the week and we have them in our mouth and we just think about them and we reflect on them. We savor them. We consider them. Are there any similarities between what the Hebrews were experiencing and our lives that may cause us to be sluggish people? Maybe our lives are very messy. We just determine that the cost of total obedience is just too painful. Maybe the price for repentance is just too high. Maybe we figure we'll have to swallow too much pride or it'll cost us too much money or maybe we'll be embarrassed or humiliated. Maybe we like our life the way it is and are afraid that truly following Jesus in some area of our life will make us uncomfortable. And so we say, okay, I will heed the word of God in every area of my life except this one. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I've got the basics. And I know he died for this sin too, so I'll just put it off to the side and live as if this area of disobedience doesn't exist. Anytime teaching or Bible reading gets close to this area of our lives, we cordon it off and we say, yeah, too close to home. Not going to refer to that. Not going to think about it. 
I'm going to turn it off. We ignore it. We get selective in our hearing and consequently we become desensitized to the word. In that area of disobedience spreads into other areas that we perceive are close or are tangential to, the, to our off-limits areas. Or we've decided that we know better than, we're God, than God and we've marginalized his teaching in this area. And so when we find discomfort in another, it's easy to go, I can do this. We just turn that area off too. He died for that sin. No problem. And we stop seeking to know God better because we've got all of them that we want. We've got the basics. We figure we've got enough to get to heaven. But 5.13 tells us that causes us to become unskilled in the word of God. You are what you eat. And so if you endeavor to only eat simple things, your development is hindered. At first it is slowed, and then it regresses. What's the antidote to this problem? Solid food and a willing ear to be taught. Solid food is for the mature, we see in 5.14. Who are the mature? The, uh, this passage says those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good, good from evil. They train their powers of discernment. They grow in wisdom. How? By constant practice. Yes, you were given the mind of Christ when you became a Christian. But this seems to be saying if you don't train that mind, you can lose it in atrophy. No days off. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. They're hearing God's word. They're holding themselves uh, up to it. And they are repenting of dead works and turning in faith toward God. The training he has in mind here requires an examined life as we recite it in our statement of faith. A life in which we are constantly evaluating our thoughts and attitudes against those of Jesus. Actively listening to good preaching and reading God's word. Not just having our eyes hit the page, but considering them, thinking about them, carrying them with us as we go through the day. Allowing them to inform all that we encounter throughout our lives. Incidentally, much of what we do here in the church is done to this end. We preach through books of the Bible so that we can understand the arguments and follow the logic of the biblical writer. We also do it that way so that you know what's coming next. You knew that we finished in 510 last week, so... We're going to be in 5.11 today. You can be reading so that you can consider ahead of time and better engage with what's being taught. We try to get you the bulletin um, um, a few days ahead of time so that you can prepare for worship. What are those emails called? Preparing for worship. You may have questions in what you read, so you come to church already engaged with the passage, and so you want to see those questions answered, and if they aren't answered in the sermon, you can ask. 
We have theological themes to our worship services that are based on the sermon text. And we pick Old Testament and New Testament readings based on the sermon text so that you will understand the basic principles of the oracles of God. How you can see how a New Testament reading is reflected or mirrored or referred to in the Old Testament. So that you can gain a more well-rounded understanding and appreciation of the passage that's being taught. We pick our confessions of faith based on these themes or sermon texts so that you may better understand the boundaries of orthodoxy. What the church fathers taught about these subjects. We want to conform our beliefs to them and tighten up our understanding so that we may think rightly about these things and not be infants tossed to and fro by the waves. We pray prayers of adoration to teach us how to praise God for for what we learn of him and his word. We have discussion questions to, and try to show you our work and our, and our sermon outlines so that you may better understand what we're saying and so that you can chew on these teachings and these scriptures throughout the week so that you may teach them to one another. That's the purpose of the discussion questions. So that you can share with one another what your insight is and what, how, how the passage hit you in your life at this per- time. We're equipping you to be teachers. We want you to become mini pastors so that the word of God may reverberate in this church, not just hearing it once, but over and over again through the individual lives and experiences and understanding of one another. We pray often in our pastoral prayers that our conversations with one another would center on the gospel or would be theological in nature, not some highbrow academic way but rather thinking about the themes that we see in the text and thinking about how that impacts us in our lives. We pray that we would be vulnerable with one another and and that we'd encourage one another with Scripture. We encourage you to have relationships and talk so that we may open up with one another about our lives, to let others in on your struggles and your decisions and your priorities and your feelings and applying what we've, we've learned in the word of God to those things so that we may be trained to distinguish good from evil. We know that just coming to hear a sermon isn't enough. And God willing, if with the Lord's help, we may begin to do Sunday school again. We may have Sunday night prayer services. But regardless of whether we have those things or not, our maturity isn't dependent upon those. Our maturity occurs when we are feeding one another and feeding ourselves the solid food of the word and the truths of Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking, are we infants? Because we seem to talk about repentance and faith a lot. We seem to talk about eternal judgment and the resurrection of the dead a lot. These are essential facts of our Christian faith. We never forget these. These are the basics of the Christian life. We never want to assume the gospel. We always want to be pointing toward the gospel for the benefit, for our benefit and the benefit of those here who have yet to believe. And by rehearsing it, it teaches one and it teaches us how to share it with others. We are sinners and we have offended a holy God. The God who created us in his image and we are we have rebelled against him and we are due a penalty and that penalty is an eternal penalty because we have offended an eternal God 
But Jesus, God in his great wisdom, sent Jesus from heaven to earth, who showed us what God was like by living a perfect life the way we were created to live. And Jesus fully obeyed to the point of death, death on a cross. And he never ever sinned. But he suffered the penalty our sin deserves and he died. And he was raised three days later as proof that that penalty for our sin has been paid. For anyone who will ever turn from their sin in repentance and in faith toward turn toward Christ. And Jesus ascended and is ruling over all things in the heavenly realms. And he will come again. And those when he comes again, those he finds trusting in their own righteousness or ambivalent toward his return will receive an eternal punishment. But those who are found trusting in Christ's righteousness and their hope is based on the return of Christ and the riches of the glorious inheritance, they will receive an eternal reward enjoyed forever with God in heaven. That's the gospel. When you join our church, we ask you to explain the gospel to us so that we can be sure that you understand the basic principles of the word of, uh, of faith. You may understand the milk. The gospel is always at the forefront. It's the basic blocking and tackling of the Christian life. The first day I ever played football in seventh grade, I was a cornerback, and the first thing my coach told me is, okay, when somebody runs your way, you attack with your outside shoulder and you don't let them outside of you. You funnel everything in. And every time I see a college football game or a pro football game, I still see those basic things happen where they'll let everybody outside of them. They always forget it. And the coach says, we just need to work on basic blocking and tackling. We just need the fundamentals. These are fundamental things that we are constantly reminding ourselves of. But if these are elementary things, what are the bigger things? What do we move on to? We're not talking about silly stuff about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Or secret things hidden in God like when the second coming is. Or making sure you're up to date on the latest controversies in evangelical Christianity. No, we're talking about knowing God better as we observe and think on Christ. As we consider his word and how he's revealed himself to his people and to his creation. We begin to see the multifacetedness of God. We begin to praise him for his mercy and his justice. His sensitivity and his patience. His wrath and his grace. And as we see him, we know him better because we become more like him, for we see him as he is. The deeper things the author has in mind will be covered throughout the remainder of the book. And he says, we will do just that. We'll move on to those things if God permits. This is an important thing to consider as we move on. I don't want to leave this point without... Uh, with the feeling that your spiritual maturity is all up to you. It's not. You are saved by grace and you are sanctified by grace. We are dependent upon the Lord for our spiritual maturity. And so when you hear that, when you hear we're dependent upon the Lord for our spiritual maturity, do you think, oh, well, I'm a spiritual infant, so it's all God's fault. God, why'd you make me like this? 
if you aren't a believer, do you think, oh, I don't have any interest in the things of God, so I guess God doesn't want me to believe. When we read in 6.3 that we will grow in spiritual maturity if God permits, should cause you to pray. God, I don't want to be a spiritual infant. I want to be mature. Please mature me. That's why we pray for spiritual maturity in our pastoral prayer. We don't do that for your benefit, thinking, okay, well, they keep praying about this, so I guess we ought to do it. No, we pray because we believe that God has an effect, that God does it. And so we're begging for God to do that in us and among us and through us. If you aren't a believer, it's a blessing that you're here and that you've heard these truths today. And if you're thinking about these things at all, be encouraged because God is working in you. But plead with the Lord. Ask Him to give you a hunger for His Word. Ask Him to remove your objection to His Word because you are convinced that there is a penalty for sin. Take the cue from the blind beggars by the roadside in the Gospels who cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. He says, what do you want? He says, I want to see. And Jesus said, He restored their sight and they got up and they followed Him. Use that same fervency in your own life. I want to see. I beg you to do the work of redemption in my life. Please. This is a very important section of Scripture for us. Spiritual infancy is not a permanent condition. It is a waypoint. Good news. Spiritual maturity is not dependent upon your intellectual ability nor your theological high-mindedness. Rather, maturity comes about by putting into practice what you hear and learn. You can't coast to spiritual maturity, but you can coast into apostasy, which is our second point. Sluggishness unchecked leads to eternal death. Sluggishness unchecked leads to eternal death. Let's read in 6.4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, Am holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let me say at the outset. In the spirit of the author of Hebrews, these five verses present you with an opportunity to turn your ears off. You may feel the tension come up in your soul and tempted to check out and say, nope, I don't believe this at all. So decide whether you're going to try to understand the author's argument or are you going to neglect what God has placed before you? Verse 4 through 6 is one long sentence with a bunch of clauses. But the basic framework of the sentence is this. 
It is impossible to renew a certain type of person to repentance if they fall away. It is impossible to renew a certain type of person to repentance if they fall away. So what type of person is the author talking about? He says here in 6.1, a person who has once been enlightened. What does this mean? Well, in 10.32, we'll see it in a second. He uses the same word enlightened. And in 10.32, it seems to mean the day you were regenerated, when you were converted. So he's talking about a person that has been regenerated. A person who has tasted the heavenly gift. There's some disagreement on what this was referring to, but the best explanation I've heard is that they've experienced the comfort of salvation. It says a person who has shared in the Holy Spirit. This means that they have been made to understand the gospel and it changes them. They are made new. It says a person who has tasted the goodness of the word of God. A person who has found comfort in the word of God and who has found encouragement from it. And they receive the word with joy. Lastly, a person who has tasted the powers of the age to come. They realize the blessings of the age to come. They are encouraged by the hope to which they are called. They're, the coming age has, has backflowed into their lives and what they are becoming in the future influenced by how they are living today. So it's saying that this person, if this person falls away, it's impossible to restore them. To, finally falls away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Now we've got a lot of questions. Is this person someone who seems to be a Christian but isn't? It doesn't sound like it. The author doesn't say a person who appears to have been enlightened or a person who seems to have tasted the heavenly gift or a person who professes to have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Is this hypothetical that, a hypothetical that could never ever happen? Well, why would the author do that? He's making a declarative statement that this type of person can't be restored is it that the author is speaking mostly to unbelievers who think they're christians so he's addressing them no doubt there's a bit of a mixed crowd in his message as there is a mixed crowd in any message but in the very next paragraph he's going to give them assurance and so it wouldn't make much sense to warn these people who are not believers in one paragraph and in the next assure them no you're you're good. You seem to be good. So that doesn't make any sense. The best I can tell, he's speaking to Christians. And he's saying, if you continue in this dullness of hearing and don't repent, it will get so bad that it leads to falling away and it will be impossible for you to repent of that. Let's think for just a minute of what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that if you sin or even sin egregiously that you can't be forgiven. It does not mean that you can't have in a moment of weakness. Even, um, we, I mean, we have heroes of the faith and forerunners of the faith who in a moment's weakness turn from God. And God was kind and gracious to restore them to repentance. I won't go into it. I'm thinking of Thomas Cranmer. Um, two weeks ago marked the 466th anniversary of Thomas Cranmer's martyrdom. And, I mean, 
He brought the, the Reformation to England, to the Church of England. He and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. He wrote the Book of Common Prayer. And he saw his, his brothers, he saw his friends burned at the stake. And under the pressure and the weight of that, he, he recanted his, his faith. He recanted his, his um, um, uh, opposition to uh, the Pope. And, um, he was, uh, and he recanted his Protestantism. And he was brought to the university church in Oxford to, to explain his recantation. And God in that moment gave him conviction of sin. When he was going to explain why he no longer believed what he professed, he stood up and instead said, I was wrong to, to submit to the Pope. I don't believe any of that. This is the truth. This is the gospel. And he knew that immediately he would be burned at the stake. And so when they lit the fire, the first thing he put in was his right hand who signed, that signed the, the, uh, the document to Queen Mary and the, and the Pope. And that was suffered judgment first. And as he was being burned, he said, Father, I see you in the heavenly realms. I see the angels in the heavenly realms. And into your hands I commit my spirit. God was merciful to him and granted him conviction of sin, even in that situation. But as we think about Cranmer's situation in this passage, we're amazed at God's grace and mercy in restoring him. And we would never want to take that for granted. Why is this such a serious thing? The author says in 6.6 that because they're once again crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. What does this mean? It means that if we consider all the blessings that this person has received in 6, 4, and 5, this person's been made aware of their sin and their rebellion against God. They've acknowledged it as such, and, they've, and, and they know their rebellion is costly. They experience the joy of forgiveness and being made new. They feel the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They understand the Word of God and see how the Old Testament pointed to, the, to Christ and how's the fulfillment of God's promises. They understand that Jesus is God who came to earth and shows God's character and mercy by dying on the cross and the certainty of God's promises. They know all that. And they say, I don't want it anymore. I don't want any of that. I found something better to place my hope in and my weight upon. Well, that's worse than the people who were standing at the cross when Jesus was crucified. For they in their ignorance were saying, come down from the cross. If you save yourself, we'll believe. You know, he can't save himself. How can he save others? And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But what can we say about these people in this instance? They knew exactly what they were doing. They understand their offense to God. There are penalties of it. And they couldn't care less. They've deliberately decided to choose sin and rebellion over the mercy of God. It's like they're standing there saying, yeah, I believed all of that. I know the repercussions and ramifications and I choose earthly comfort over the fleeting pleasures of sin, over the promises of eternal life. This is where sluggishness unchecked leads. It's tough to hear. And we think, how could this ever happen to a true Christian? 
The author explains this further in verses 7 and 8 where he's come up with this farming analogy that Pastor Kyle alluded to earlier that seems to borrow from the parable over the soils. Land that has drunk the rain that falls on it produces a crop. People are the land or the soil and the rain are the blessings of God described in 6, 4 through 5. And the crop is the fruit. Does it produce a crop? Or does it die? If it dies due to persecution and trials, it's a seed that fell on rocky soil. It wasn't legitimate. It isn't genuine. Does it produce thorns and thistles? Verse 8, it's burned in the fire. This is straight from Isaiah 5 in our Old Testament reading. We've heard in the past couple of weeks, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart the way your forefathers did. Does it produce a crop that's useful? That's the fruitful one. That's the one that, that proves itself a fruit tree. What's the crop that's useful? Think back to when John was baptizing in the wilderness and the Pharisees came. And he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The biggest fruit there is, is Repentance. Repentance when you sin, a responsiveness to the word of God, a conviction of sin, an openness to correction. I'm sure there's a phrase that's in the back of our minds right now that we're prone to rest on, and that's once saved, always saved. If we're confronted with this text, how it's possible for us to fall away if we don't repent, and we say, "Uh uh-uh, once saved, always saved. Well, we are no better than the Pharisees who responded to John's message of repentance by saying, we don't have to repent. We're children of Abraham. That doesn't apply to us. And John says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he just explained what the fruit is in the verse before. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. A Christian without repentance is like a fig tree with full of leaves and no figs. And what did Jesus do to that tree? It was cursed and died. Yes, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I'm banking on the perseverance of the saints. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Those who are truly regenerate endure to the end. And how do we endure? by hearing and responding to the word of God and by growing in discernment, but trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so if we are troubled by this passage, our response shouldn't be once saved, always saved. Our response should be praise God that he is patient with us and kind and has provided us with an opportunity to repent and to live in accordance with the word of God. Romans 2, 3, and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge these, uh, those who practice such things yet do them yourself, that will, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do, you, or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Those who repent are God's people. And those who fall away who abandoned the faith? 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us 
because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This warning will not allow us to camp in spiritual infancy. It gives no comfort to the complacent. It makes the believer desire to press on and cling to Christ for hope and assurance. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fail. Which leads to our last point in verses 9-12. through 12. Fighting against sluggishness is a lifelong battle. Let's read 6, 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's just warned his audience with the harshest, most alarming warning, certainly in the New Testament letters, possibly in the entire New Testament. But now he makes the effort to assure them that he is confident of better things for them and for, in, in, for their assurance. I believe that we can, find, we can both find assurance in these verses and a game plan for us in our fight against sluggishness. The first thing he encourages them with and I think helps us fight against sluggishness is he begins with God's love. He calls them Beloved. Beloved, not people who want to be loved by God, but people who are loved by God. He refers to them as beloved. God is not put out with you. God loves you. You want proof that God loves you? Go back and look at how he loves you in verses in six, verses four and five. He has done all of these things in you. He has made you find joy in Christ and comfort in the word of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is gracious to you and he loves you. You've been enlightened by God. He's given you that taste of the heavenly gift that's yours. He's caused his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. He's enabled you to taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Why did God love you in this way? for your good and for his glory. He didn't love it to love you in this way to snatch it away from you. He doesn't give that way. He's chosen to display his love to the world by doing this in you. Begin your fight against sluggishness with the love of God. Secondly, he looks for evidences of grace and faith in their lives. We see this in verse 10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Does this mean that they're saved by works? That God is looking to determine whether he saves them or not by what they do? No, but just as Abraham's obedience and works displayed and gave evidences of his faith, 
So also these Hebrews' works give evidence of their faith. Most thinks that the, think that this points to 10.32-34 where we're going to see another warning very similar to what we see here that's echoed here. And in 1032, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that in, after you were regenerated, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who tr so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The author says that this wasn't just some horizontal love for people that you drummed up. No, this was a display of the love for the name of God in service to God himself. This is evidence of faith. It's not just doing good works. It's faith working itself out in costly ways. To borrow from, uh, from our New Testament reading of the parable of the soils, this isn't a picture of the soil on rocky ground. You experienced trials and tribulations and you stood against it and you were joyfully accepting the plundering of your property. This is a good work. This is evidence of God's work in you. This is faith in costly ways. Look for evidences of God's grace in your life. And help have others look at your life too and go, that's not the work of a guy faking it. That's a work of a believer. I think indirectly we see another fight in sluggishness here in this point. We, do, we fight sluggishness together. This is a group project. Perseverance is a group project. The pronouns are all plurals here. Y'all... Each one of you, we, our, this requires all of us struggling and striving together. The author and his group is pointing out evidences of grace and faith in those he's exhorting. We need that. We need other people looking into our lives, seeing things that we may not see, confirming the things that we think we see. Another way that we can fight the sluggishness in this life is take the evidences of faith in your life and rather than rest on them, be encouraged and employ that earnestness in other areas of our life, which we see there in verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in this area to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Employ it in other areas. Take earnestness and fight for hope until Christ's return. The picture here is one of people growing tired and doing good. It's like saying, no, these trials may last for a long time, but you're running a marathon. It's not a sprint. Keep going. Keep the good fight. You're doing well. Keep it up. Then he says, imitate others. We imitate others so that we may not be sluggish. We all have people in our lives that we see suffering and enduring for the glory of God. We have people in this church who are great examples, but I'm not going to call them out because it will embarrass them and they'll no doubt feel like, man, I need this message as bad as the rest of us do. But I do encourage them privately and I watch their lives. I pray for them to persevere and endure. I'm encouraged by them and I want to imitate them. Imitate those we see striving in the Bible. 
The author will give us an entire chapter, chapter 11, to help us endure as we see these people to imitate. But not only there, pay attention in your Bible reading every day for examples of endurance and patience and ask God to undertake for you in the same way that he did for them. Lastly, remind yourselves of God's promises and ground your hope in those. These things here that cause us to doubt or turn away from God are fleeting. They're like cotton candy in the mouth. One taste and they're gone. God's promises are sure and certain and they are eternal. And as the author will say in Hebrews 11, those heroes of the faith, Abraham, Moses, David, Gideon, Samuel, Sarah, they still haven't received the promises either. They'll receive them the same day you receive them. They're looking to their reward. We're looking to our reward in the same spirit. Christ is returning. We must be servants who are found doing his work when he returns. Sure, living a life of faith is tiring, but Christ is coming. And his rest is better. It's an eternal rest. It's a complete rest. It's a satisfying rest. Therefore, let us put aside sluggishness and let us strive to enter that rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only you know the struggles of our hearts. We confess that our sluggishness may not be evident to us. Very seldom does the person whose hearing is going out recognize that his hearing is deteriorating. But Father, we ask in your mercy that you would show us where we are dull of hearing. Lord, renew our spirits. Restore our hope that you have promised us. Help us to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, we thank you that you have placed us in a church that takes this seriously. And Lord, by your grace, we endeavor to encourage others to fight the good fight of faith. Thank you for our forerunner in faith, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins and who is interceding on our behalf right now before you. We rest on him. In Jesus' name, amen.